Hi, everybody. I'm Matt. And I'm Steve. And this is Marvel Reread Club. Welcome back, everybody. We were just talking about how our last episode posted late because of SoundCloud not getting along with Apple somehow. So, so, so any of you listening on Spotify, you got our episode at the time intended. Any of you listening on Apple Podcasts did not. And it just rolled out, uh, I believe, Saturday morning rather than the usual overnight Monday morning. But we are back however long it has been since you heard our last episode. We are here to discuss more comics. We have some good comics. Is there anything else we want to discuss before we jump into the comics, Steve? I don't really think so. No, let's just go ahead and talk comics. So we've got a problem here in that Marvel is putting out more and more comics. And in the past, there had been sort of a thing for a while where they were putting out six comics on one month, followed by eight comics on the next month. And we had gotten in a position of going like, okay, on the months where they put out six comics, we'll do those as one episode of the podcast. And the months where they're putting out eight comics, we'll do those as two episodes of the podcast. Well, they then bumped up the six book months to seven books. And with this month, the Avengers goes monthly. So now every month is eight books, eight superhero books a month, in addition to all the non-superhero books they were putting out. So this sort of puts the lie to the myth that Marvel was only able to publish eight books a month, because at this point, they were publishing eight superhero books a month, plus Sergeant Fury, plus Millie the Model, plus Two Gun Kid, plus a lot of other books. So that's our current situation here on this podcast, is that we've got eight books a month. So other podcasts have done what we want to do before we did. Marvel by the month cut down their description of all but three books to one minute, starting a couple months before they got to this time period. Um, I don't know if I necessarily want to do that. I kind of, I feel like we have to offer something different that they did. And one of the things that is going to be different about us is that we go into a little more in depth. But I think that the most obvious way to deal with this problem is just, we just have every month now be split into two episodes. And we stick with our general thing of doing about 15 minutes a book. And so we'll have hour-long episodes of this show, each of which will cover half of a month of Marvel Comics, four books at a time. And I guess that's sort of our plan at this point. Yeah, we, we haven't really talked about it. And clearly, you know, if this thing were to keep on going, you know, uh, ad infinitum, you know, by the time we get to like the 70s and stuff, they're putting out like dozens of books a month. Uh, so, you know, clearly that would not work and we'd have to rethink things. But yeah, I think for the moment where we are, uh, we are going to stick with the two episodes per month of published comics for the time being. So tonight's episode will cover the first half of August 1964. So we will be discussing The Amazing Spider-Man number 15, Daredevil number 3, Fantastic 429, and Journey into Mystery number 107. And then we'll save the next four for the next week. So let's go ahead and jump in. Let's go ahead and jump into Spider-Man number 15. So we discussed how in the first 14 issues of this book, we had all of Spider-Man's big IP had already been laid out, that all of the big villains that he would face in his eight movies, other than A Brief Appearance by Venom, had appeared in those 14 books. And that implies that there's going to be a certain tailing off of... Dicko and Lee's creativity here in the remaining, I'm trying to do, do the math here, in the remaining <laughs> 24 books of Steve, Dicko, and Stanley's run on this book up until issue 39. And that is about to happen, but we have one last great character and a character that indeed Sony Universal has 
planned on doing something with for a long time. This is just a character they haven't quite gotten to. And that is Craven the Hunter. You can make the case that Craven the Hunter is the last great lead Ditko creation. We've still got the Scorpion coming. We've still got the Molten Man coming. I don't want it to be in the Scorpion and the Molten Man. They're perfectly fine characters, but they're no Craven the Hunter. And I think you can make a case that Craven the Hunter is the last great lead Ditko creation. And not that they're just going to be coasting for the next 24 issues because they do a lot of great work in those 24 issues. But they go like, we've created so many wonderful characters in the first 15 issues and let's just get more value out of them, which is what they're going to be doing until Ditko leaves the book. I concur. So let's go ahead and look at Amazing Spider-Man number 15, Craven the Hunter. We have a beautiful splash page where uh, we are looking down at Spider-Man as he is lowering himself outside a room full of hoods. There are, of course, Venetian blinds in the way because Ditko loves them. And Spider-Man is, catches much crooks, but one of the crooks gets away because well, well, he hold, has... Hold, let, let, can we do the credits first? Because once again, they get creative with these and I love them. Yes, so the written, written by Stan Lee, because we couldn't afford Mickey Spillane, illustrated by Steve Ditko, because Picasso was out of town, lettered by Art Simak, because his name fit this space. Yes. So <laughs> they, they have lots of fun with that, and uh, uh, I don't want to shortchange them on it. Okay, back to the story. Yes, always always finding a way to deride the, the letterer. <laughs> so one of the people who was involved in this criminal gang gets away because he has a special gas that can, he says, made it now to release my special chemical gas to instantly change the color of my suit. So this is making the case that Dicko is creating these characters because that is an idea Dicko loves because later yes. his character of the question will have a special gas that changes the color of his suit. In this case, it turns out to be the chameleon who we have not seen since Spider-Man number one. He was working with this criminal gang, and he is still a Soviet spy. I don't know. I guess he's probably not still a Soviet spy. I guess he's just a petty criminal now. But he still has connections within Russia, because he then decides he's going to take on Spider-Man, and he's going to call his old friend Craven the Hunter, who is a Russian hunter who's going to come try to hunt Spider-Man. We get... I, think, I think that later on they establish that they're actually cousins. But oh, I, cool. I, I don't know that for a fact, but I, I think I remember that. Oh, that's funny. He just calls him my old friend here. Right. Well, I mean, and I might be wrong, too. So I then J. John Jameson and Betty Brand run out to the docks where they find out that Craven is arriving by ship. They bring Peter along. But then it just so happens, bad for Peter, Liz and Flash have also come to greet Craven at the docks because everybody in town is very excited about meeting Craven. He's a world famous big game hunter, and he's never been to America before. And so everybody wants to see this world famous big game hunter. And so that's why there's a crowd. Even teenagers from Forest Hills High School are making their way into Manhattan for the special docking of the ship. And whoops, Betty is not happy to see Liz there. And we once again get these wonderful word balloons where Betty's word balloon is dripping with acid or dripping with, I'd say, venom. Venom. And uh, meanwhile, we get more of our love triangle here between, but really a love rectangle between Betty, Liz, Pete, and Flash. I think that the Jay Giles band put it best years ago when they said he loves her, but she loves him and he loves somebody else. You just can't win. Exactly. Craven announces he has come to hunt Spider-Man. Pete isn't very happy to hear that. Cut to a couple nights later. Some crooks are on a rooftop. Spider-Man goes to stop and turns out they've just been hired by Craven to lure Spider-Man on the up and he's watching him fight. Then he pounces on Spider-Man. They get in a big fight. Spider-Man hurts his shoulder, which is a recurring theme we've had happen a lot. 
we have, again, one of these rare instances where Steve Dicko does not draw something adequately. We're just basically looking at Craven's butt as he is doing something to Spider-Man, which we cannot see. And then we have to rely on Stanley's captions explaining that Craven has nicked him with a special potion, which is not shown at all in the arc. It's always tricky in these Spider-Man issues to explain why the Spider-Man and the villain fight on page five and then don't finish the fight and only finish the fight at the end of the issue. And often Lee has to very sort of awkwardly explain this in the text. So Stanley has Craven say, I've won Spider-Man. My potion will weaken you enough for me to beat you anytime I desire, but I'll prolong my enjoyment. I'll finish you off another time. And then <laughs> Spider-Man thinks, I'll let him go for now. I've got to clear my head. So Stanley is sort of struggling to explain why Dicko didn't just have them finish the fight. Spider-Man comes home. He's all dizzy from the getting nicked with the potion. So then Pete wakes up in the morning. He's feeling not dizzy anymore, but his hands are the shakes. He's trying to hide this. When, when that morning, Aunt May comes in. And so we've already got our love rectangle here, which is they're having a lot of fun with. And then it becomes a love pentagram because we are a <laughs> well, new uh, figure. Pen, pen, pentagon, come on. I mean, pentagram is, well, well the, it, it doesn't become a pentagram until he makes a deal with Mephisto years <laughs> and years later. <laughs> but it's, I would call it a pentagram because you've got these angles. Everybody is, is interacting with everybody else in the, in the pentagram. I'd call it a pentagram, not a pentagon. Maybe a star. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> because. Aunt May wants to set Pete up with Miss Watson's niece, whose name is Mary Jane. And Pete is just like, a blind date. Oh, brother, that's all I need. Then he says, I appreciate a lot, Aunt May, but... And she says, no buts about it, Peter Parker. It's about time you began to think seriously about your future. You'll want a girl who will make a good housewife, someone like Miss Watson's niece. And Pete is just assuming that she must be unattractive, because otherwise, why would her aunt be setting her up on dates? Now, well, course, and I think not just unattractive, it's just like, you know, your elderly aunt has an, has a friend and it's like, oh, well, I have this friend and she's got a niece about your age. Why don't you two go out on a date? Not knowing any other information about it. You know, how, yes. how excited would you be with that? And it's also, you know, it's one of these things like it's almost hard to remember now that when Buffy the Vampire Slayer came out, the whole point of Buffy is it just sounded like a vapid cheerleader kind of name. Same kind of thing, I think, with Mary Jane. I think that was supposed to sound like just this very plain, uninteresting kind of girl. And it's just that we know, looking back on it, that she is anything but. That's true. It never occurred to me. But uh, so then Peter just begs out of it. He's like, uh, yeah, that's not happening. I'm never going to go out with Mary Jane Watson. I'm certainly never going to marry her. Right. Of course, he will eventually end up marrying her. She will be a good wife to him for many years. So then Peter is back with Betty. She doesn't know to be jealous of Mary Jane yet. She is still jealous of Liz. And it's sort of fun where she's got little musical notes around what she's saying. Oh, hello, Petey Weety. Here, let me fix your teensy weetsy tie, Petey. And she's like, he's like, yes, Liz calls me Petey and I don't care because I don't care about her. But Betty doesn't want to hear it. There's a great panel. He finally decides to go back out of Spider-Man. And there's a great panel at the bottom of page 13 where he's trying to shoot webs while his hands are shaking. And <laughs> the webs are shooting off in all directions. And it's a... Uh, it's yeah, they're, they're, all, they're like all squiggly. And, you know, it <laughs> really does bring, it, bring across the look of, you know, his hand is trembling. And so the web is going up, down, up, down, up, down, up, down. It's very effective. So this brings us to the park, and we are going to get a book this month in which Deco does not ink himself. And yes. boy, oh boy, will it be missed, because <laughs> this nighttime scene where he fights Craven in the park really shows the value of Deco's 
inking because it really looks like nighttime. It's really heavy shadows in the park. Spider-Man finds Craven in the park, but it's all a trap. As a matter of fact, there are two Cravens in the park because the chameleon is also there dressed up as Craven and gets Spider-Man in a net, gets away, but then he attaches really bizarre trap for Spider-Man. He gives him a magnetic ankle bracelet and a magnetic handcuff that are attracted to each other. So this never actually works, but like if your hand were suddenly attached to your ankle, that would be really painful and bizarre. It would really keep you from getting around very easily. Yes. <laughs> really bizarre. But so then uh, Spider-Man's getting away. He eventually figures out he can just cover it in web fluid and that'll counteract it. He catches one of the Cravens, rips off the face mask, turns out it's really chameleon. He eventually catches the other Craven as well, gets them both handed over to the police and captured. Nice to have an issue in which they're actually captured for once. I get tired of the issues in which they always get away. Although, as we'll see, they don't they don't stay in custody for long. So then Betty is finally ready to make nice with Peter when he drops off his photos for J. Joe Jameson. She wants to do a date. She's like, Pete, Peter, I'm sorry for the way I spoke to you before. I had no right to be nasty because another girl likes you. I, I'm not doing anything tonight. And then Peter thinks, heck, I promised that may I'd meet that Watson girl tonight. But I just can't tell Betty, well, no, you shouldn't. And so he, so I had implied before that he had turned down Rachel. And I guess he did not. I guess he had agreed to that date. He says, uh, no, I can't do it. And she's like, oh, I should have known. It's because of Liz. And he comes back home. He's all bummed out. And then Aunt May has, quote, bad news for him. And she's like, Peter, dear, I've been waiting for you. I'm afraid I have bad news. Mrs. Watson's niece has a headache. She can't see you tonight. I hope you're not too disappointed, dear. So he's like, gosh, Aunt May, it is a shock. But no, I'll be big about it. And we can see he's ecstatic. And he goes and calls up Betty for a date. Betty hangs up on him. And then he instantly says, oh, if that's the way she wants to act, I'll call Liz Allen. So it turns out all this jealousy was entirely justified. <laughs> yes, Betty. As soon as Peter thinks you've lost interest in him, or as soon as you turn up Peter for a date, he is going to call up Liz Allen. So you were totally right. He calls up Liz Allen. Liz Allen is out dancing with Flash Thompson. So Peter thought that he was going to have a date with Mary Jane, then tried to get a date with Betty, and then tried to get a date with Liz. So Peter officially has three women on his docket now, all three of whom will continue to be a factor in this book for some time. So it will become more and more of an issue that Dicko does not show Mary Jane's face. And this will become a running gag that Dicko will get a lot of good value out of. But ultimately, Dicko will decide that we should never see Mary Jane's face and we should never see the Green Goblin's face. That will be sort of a thing with Dicko as the book continues on for the next 24 issues. And then as soon as John Romita comes on the book with issue 39, then he is very quickly going to show Green Goblin's real face as Norman Osborn, and he's very quickly going to show Mary Jane's face. And in one of the most famous panels of all time, uh, Face it, Tiger, You've Hit the Jackpot. And both characters are a lot of fun when we can't see their faces. Dicko gets a lot of fun out of never seeing Mary Jane's face and a lot of fun out of never seeing Green Goblin's face. But both characters become better once we can't see their faces. Like actual Mary Jane becomes one of the all-time great characters and actual Norman Osborn becomes one of the all-time great characters. But I don't think that that's a knock on Dicko. I think that Dicko just had an idea and gets a lot of good value out of it. And then he ended up building up value and building up, building up, building up. And then Romina comes along and cashes it in. We then cut to... Both the chameleon and Craven are just being expelled from the country. This is one of the cops. By the way, whenever I read these comics to my son, I always give the cops thick Irish accents uh, because <laughs> it's more fun that way. So we've got an Irish cop going, 
You're both getting off mighty easy by merely being deported from this country. Just make sure you don't come back. Sees them being shipped on a ship. And then, oh, coincidence, Spider-Man watching the ship go away and thinks, maybe a trip here to the docks will help me forget about Betty for a while. Gee, I'd like to be on that ship right now. It looks so quiet, so peaceful. But I'm just not that lucky. Little does he suspect his villains are on that ship. And then that's the end of the issue. Yeah, this was a momentous issue. I think that with Craven, they just have not yet had, I mean, they've had a lot of Spider-Man movies and they've got a whole big rogues list to get through and they just haven't gotten to Craven yet. But I mean, he is one of the great Spider-Man villains. Uh, I know that in the late 80s, J.M. DeMattis, Mike Zeck, and Bob McCloud did a fantastic storyline with Craven that is building, obviously, on this character that was created here. So yeah, uh, this was a good one. And also we introduced the idea of Mary Jane Watson. And yes, we will not see her face as long as Steve Ditko is drawing the book, which I think is a very good idea. As I've said, as good of an artist as Steve Ditko is, he cannot draw glamour girl faces well. I'm glad that we waited until we had jazzy Johnny Ramita come in and <laughs> and take care well, of it. Ditko, but Ditko will play with it for a while of giving contrasting hints that she is actually pretty versus is actually unattractive. He will teasing us into thinking one way or the other. Although it is it is clear, just as it is clear by the time that Dicko leaves the book that Norman Osborne was going to be the Green Goblin. It is also clear by the time that Dicko leaves the book that Mary Jane was attractive, but he had not actually revealed either of their faces. Well, I mean, he had revealed Norman Osborne and the Green Goblin. He had not revealed the Green Goblin was Norman Osborne. And he yes. had not revealed Mary Jane's face, which I agree. It's a good thing that Romina got to do it because Romina drew the hell out of that face. So, yes. um, yeah, this is a very fun issue. I really love what they're doing with the love pentagram. Although it is so funny that, like, just our idea of dating is just so different these days that, you know, yes. like that Pete is somehow not a total heel for calling up Liz for a date when Betty turns him down. Yes, this is a good one. As you said, possibly the last of the great Spider-Man villains. So, yeah, let's go ahead and move on to a um, pretty soul-sucking issue. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Not to oversell it to everyone out there right now, <laughs> but here comes Daredevil, the man without fear, uh, and we are going to meet this great nemesis, the Owl, overlord of crime. I think this issue is better than last issue, the where he fought Electro in the Baxter building. Uh, oh, yeah. Yeah. And, and, and had to land a spaceship. Yeah. Yeah, no, absolutely. This isn't that bad, but that one almost had the advantage of being so bad. It was really sort of entertaining. It's like, I think this might be the worst Silver Age Marvel comic. I, I think we might have it right here. Whereas this one is just a little bit more mediocrely bad. Yeah. So anyway, we once again have Joe Orlando and Vince Coletta as the art team. Well, the credits say written with raw realism by Stan Lee. Illustrated with daring drama by Joe Orlando, inked with actual artistry by Vince Coletta, and lettered with perfect precision by Sam Rosen. So for once, the letterer isn't uh, being humiliated either by Stan or himself in this thing. So we are introduced to this character, the Owl. We just sort of see him in shadow for a little bit, and uh, he's apparently this, this legendary business shark, basically, who made... Tons and tons and tons of money. We see that he is dirty. He is framing people. He is, you know, blackmailing people. So one of the guys that he's blackmailing or framing or something like that 
ends up uh, jumping out a window and no, he doesn't. He no, doesn't? he doesn't. No, oh, he's pushed. wait. I gotta say, I kind of like these opening pages. I can sort of see Joe Orlando as a former EC artist here, former yes. EC Comics artist. There's sort of a sense of horror in these opening pages, and it's very much laid out like an EC page. It's done in nine panels with a lot of writing on the top of every panel, and then art underneath it. We're sort of following this person in shadow as he enters, and then we see him ruin his former accountant. And then we get this three-panel sequence where you can tell, because Orlando's doing a good job on the art, that this guy is about to kill himself. You can tell from the way he's walking and slumping and the way his shadow is cast on the wall that he's clearly high up in this building and he has been ruined by the owl and he is considering suicide. And then in the third panel, we see someone in black silhouette seemingly going down off of a building shouting, Wee! <laughs> for all the world, it looks like the accountant has committed suicide by jumping out of a building shouting, Wee! <laughs> Eventually, we realize, no, this is Daredevil who is jumping down off of the building shouting we. No, no, no. The, the, no, the, the, the we is the, is the siren down below. Oh, do you think so? Yeah, oh, absolutely. Okay. I mean, that, that's what look at how we is angled there. That's supposed oh, to be coming okay. from the street. I thought that was just Daredevil was enjoying himself saying we. <laughs> <laughs> so then, but no, we find out that the guy has committed suicide by throwing himself in front of a truck right okay and yeah. um but he it certainly looks like for all the world that like he is jumping out of a building saying we but no that is daredevil jumping off a building right so then he is so then the owl is brought in for questioning about this goes ahead and says that he'll hire a lawyer but he really is just so good that he doesn't need a big fancy lawyer he can just call anybody in the phone book so who does he call? He calls Nelson and Murdoch. This book just fundamentally does not work in that what is Matt's relationship going to be to criminals as a lawyer versus as a superhero? This has always been a problem that has plagued Daredevil throughout his entire run and even in his TV show is that it's not exactly clear what that relationship is going to be. Because in this case, he says, yes, Al, he grabs the phone out of Foggy's hand and says, I don't believe in turning down any cases, Foggy. I'll handle this one if you don't want to. Hello, Al? I'll be in court in 10 minutes. But he is doing so because he wants to nail the owl. He's saying, yes, I will represent you because you are a crook and I want to nail you. And that is just not a very ethical way to be a lawyer. It is not a good way to be a superhero lawyer. But that is what is going on here. Right. <laughs> it's it, it, lots of stuff about this just does not work until the Roger McKenzie days, basically. All right. So for whatever reasons, sometimes... They, in comics, they worry about costume changes, and sometimes they don't. And I think it usually makes more sense when they're just like, eh, they just, they're suddenly in costume. It's fine. You know, they wear it underneath all the time, and then, hey, they change back in their civilian clothes. Where'd they get them? Eh, who, knows? who cares? And that usually works better, but for some reason, they're really obsessing here in Daredevil with this whole problem. So he ties up his courtroom suit into a ball that it looks like he's bouncing like a basketball across the rooftops. <laughs> that thing is going to look disheveled and dirty <laughs> by the time you get to the courthouse. But he shows up, and uh, when he meets the owl for the first time, he thinks, it's incredible. I can tell by the sound of his heartbeat, his pulse rate, his labored breathing. The man is charged with sheer animal power, with almost unlimited energy all of it directed into evil channels. And the thing is, you look at him and he looks like a slob. You know? yeah. <laughs> just, he, the, the picture does not match the description 
at all. But then you get to the weirdest thing. So they already had like, oh, I'm going to need a suit when I get to the courthouse. So I'm going to roll it up into a ball and dribble it like a basketball. And then he's like, okay, well, I can't keep doing that. So instead, I, unlike every other superhero ever created, am going to carry around a little backpack on my superhero costume <laughs> where I'll keep my suit. Now, there is a moment at the end of this issue where he is at the Owl's headquarters and has to change into Matt Murdock. And I think clearly, Joe Orlando got to that point at the end and it's like oh crap how would he have matt murdoch clothes to change into i'm gonna have to go back all right i swear he redrew the book at that point <laughs> and said i've got to go back and establish how he has a matt murdoch suit on him after doing all this daredevil action i've got to give him a little backpack where he keeps his suit and then daredevil for the rest of the issue has a little red backpack that he wears the whole time he's daredevil so that he can change back into matt murdoch at the end it is the damnedest thing yes it makes no sense for superheroes to always have a change of clothes on hand, but it is so weird to have him wear a little backpack. Well, and I think that Spider-Man sometimes webs up his regular clothing in sort of a, a little backpack kind of thing sometimes, but that's always an ad hoc something or other. And yeah, his his little back, as you're describing his backpack, it sort of looks like either a very, very, very short and thick cape. Or <laughs> it's a cross between that and a backpack. Yeah, it's uh, it's, it's almost it's more like a fanny pack for your back. It's really strange. And they make it clear he fits his lawyer shoes in there along with everything else. And then we get actually some really nice panels of Daredevil. It looks like one point jumping through the sewers in what looks like a very Steve Ditko-esque panel. And then up on, I think that's the Brooklyn Bridge. And, you know, we get some nice views of the city here as he is going out. Uh, and searching for the owl now that he went missing. Now, the one really interesting thing I think about this issue, at the top of page eight, you yes. and I talked about, well, I guess in, in the previous Daredevil issue, issue number two, Joe Orlando never really gets name-checked as an influence on Watchmen, but he has an unnoticed influence. He has actually a very strong influence throughout it. Um, here on page eight at the top, we just found the design for Archie the airship. From, yeah, from Night Owl's ship and Watchmen. Yeah, very yeah. much. And yeah. the Owl's headquarters here looks exactly like Archie the airship and Watchmen. Yes. Owl has this weird owl-shaped modern architecture headquarters up in a cliffside somewhere, and he calls it the Airy. Anyway, so he's hanging out there. At this point, he has just given up on being a successful businessman who just does underhanded things on the side. He is now just going to be a full-on criminal mastermind at this point. He's hiring gunmen. He's got a big gorilla that he has somebody wrestle to prove that he can be one of his one of his henchmen. But he's now got a gunman and a big strong guy he is going to use as part of his criminal empire well first he drops them out of he's like oh yes. you're hired now i'm gonna drop you out of a trap door and have you fall out of the cliff and fall to your deaths but wait first i will fly so it turns out this guy can fly and yes. it's one of these things where it's like well he can't fly he has the power to glide but he has the power to glide on the air currents apparently just because of his cape sort of thing i don't think he's supposed to have any sort of physical powers but he can glide so well that he can pick up two people from midair and gently land with them on the ground. And it's like, well, that's a hell of a glider, dude. Like, you can pick up people? Yeah, uh, I, that's one of the things that gets me about the owl. There's really no, I mean, I mean, I know we're talking comic books. Nobody can fly. I get it. 
but you gotta give me some something to hang my suspension of disbelief on. Yes. <laughs> you, know? you gotta give me something. With the owl, we simply don't have it. Daredevil has figured out where the owl is at the moment. And he crashes in through a window. And of course, the owl now has these two bodyguards. But Daredevil can take care of him pretty easily. He ends up doing like something straight out of a Saturday morning cartoon where he lays on his back and is essentially spinning one of the guys around with his feet in above him and then kicks him over towards the other ones. And they all go down like 10 pins. It's pretty silly, but, you know, uh, at least it's quite visually interesting. Right. Okay. I'm sorry. When I said that he figures out where the owl is, that's because he's actually literally next door to Nelson and Murdoch. So he no, can he's, hear them. No, he's in Matt's office at Nelson and Murdoch. Muffled whispers from the next office are like roaring shouts to me. There are yeah, three the men next in office there. is his office. Oh. Wait. Oh, it says, what are they doing here next door to Matt Murdoch? Yeah, it says, that's what I'm saying. So, but then he thinks... So that's it. He's here to try to make Matt Murdock his lawyer. So it's really bizarre because Matt Murdock was already his lawyer. <laughs> he had already hired Matt Murdock to be his lawyer. And now he has come back seemingly to hire Matt Murdock to be his lawyer again. Like, or, or, oh, or I to did pressure him to, to, or like to lean on him to be his lawyer, it seems. But like. Matt was more than willing to be his lawyer. It was he who had ditched Matt. And yes. so now he's come back with his goons. Uh, you're right, in the office next door to Matt Murdock. To try to get Matt, the whole thing makes no sense. It, no, you know, no. to the degree to if Lee is relying on Joe Orlando to plot the book, then Joe Orlando is letting him down so severely. Yeah, I don't think Joe Orlando is much for superhero comics. Yeah. Anyway, then uh, somehow Karen realizes she left her purse and comes back in. She hears the fight going on in the next door office and lets herself into this other office that theoretically should be after business hours. She doesn't have a key to. Whatever. She's able to open the door and she sees Daredevil fighting the owl. Um, and, you know, Daredevil wants to protect Karen, who is in the middle of being kidnapped. So he surrenders and uh, the owl has an evil cackle there. But then at one point there, Daredevil calls Karen by her name when she first comes in. Says, Karen, run. Don't waste a minute before they get you. And then at the bottom of that page, Karen's as they're both being captured. Karen says, Daredevil. You knew my name. How? Where do we? And he says, no time for that now. I'll explain later. Then I've got to be more careful. I forgot that Daredevil isn't supposed to know Karen Page. I almost gave myself away. <laughs> just like everyone in the Marvel Universe, except for Peter Parker, is just super sloppy with any sort of secret identity. Yeah. For hey. some reason, the for some reason, Lee can handle secret identities just fine on Spider-Man, but everywhere else is atrocious. I don't know why. Daredevil and Karen are put into separate dangling, like, you know, go-go dancer cages, basically. Yeah. <laughs> the owl just sort of leaves them there. And of course, you know, the old uh, supervillain walking out is like, oh, I don't need to worry about you anymore. He's able to uh, get them out of there. And he like, he's able to bend steel bars somehow here. And once again, it's like, Daredevil isn't super strength. Like, what's going on? He's now searching through the airy to find the owl. And ends up finding his garage, puts Karen in a car, and says, get out of here. You know, uh, save yourself. I'm going to go take care of the owl. She says, but you still haven't explained. The owl was a client of my boss, Matt Murdock. What did he want? How did you get involved? How do you know me? And he <laughs> says, the, the last question is the easiest. 
I've seen you in my dreams since I can remember, Karen. <laughs> she says, <laughs> strange, when you say that, something in your voice reminds me of, oh, my second careless mistake. I forgot to muffle my voice. I mean, it's the whole Batman thing. Yes. Bruce Wayne talks like this, but then I'm Batman. Uh, yeah, and, and the thing is, that answer doesn't even have any explanation in it. I mean, the only explanation I could get from the answer he gives there is, oh, you've been stalking me for quite a while. I mean, that's that's the only thing that comes up with that. She takes off and he is fighting the owl. The owl glides down. He gets into a motorboat. And also the dialogue for the owl is just the worst. I've planned perfectly, thought of everything. My fully fueled power launch is docked below, ready for just such an emergency. How easy it is for me. Uh, that's right, because the police have shown up at this point. The, the lamest villains usually have the most braggadocious <laughs> dialogue in these things. Yes. Daredevil comes up and he somehow is able to jam his billy club into the propeller of the motorboat that the owl is in. Daredevil gets back out of the water and apparently is able to change back in. I, I guess that little cape thing that he's got is a waterproof suit back. Yes, it must be. <laughs> because and I'm guessing he doesn't he isn't wearing his suit underneath his suit at this point because it would be soaking wet. Anyway, he turns back into uh, Matt Murdock. Karen's like, oh, good thing you weren't here earlier. All this stuff happened. Oh, Matt, you seem to remind me of a totally different person. It's like, oh, well, I'm, I, I, I got to go. So uh, and she now is is thinking, oh, why does he remind me of Daredevil? Yeah, Why? Why? <laughs> <laughs> anyway, I spent way too much time on on that issue because it is not worth it. But there were well, some uh, there were some funny things to point out along the way. Why doesn't he just tell her his secret identity? It's not like she's going to sell his secret identity for a heroin fix. <laughs> oh wait, ah, she yes. does in fact do that. Sorry. <laughs> uh, yes, in the eighties. Yeah. So so that's it. Uh, I don't, if you have anything to say about this issue, that's fine. Otherwise, we've spent too much time on it already. Too much time on Ray. Yeah, this is a pretty terrible issue. You know, they're trying to say, like, okay, the Daredevil needs ongoing villains here. He didn't get an ongoing villain for either of the first two issues. And the Owl will indeed be an ongoing villain. They'll generate whole lots of issues of Daredevil going forward, although it's interesting that Miller never uses him and Anderson, he never uses him. But he, so he, he'll disappear for most of the 80s, which is for the best. He is not a great villain. He is not a great character. But, you know, he's going to hold Daredevil in good stead for the 60s and 70s. And, you know, we've got a lot of issues to get through before Frank Miller takes over the book. And, well, and with issue and 168. Frank Miller, I, I, I mean, I sort of feel like Frank Miller more or less was like, okay, I know the owl is his big, like, master gangster villain. But, oh, my God, it's the owl. Could I please have Kingpin? <laughs> yeah, you're right. He just totally steals Kingpin from the Spider-Man books because he doesn't want to do the owl. I say in my notes, art is better than last issue, but still terrible. Matt as blind still makes no sense. Matt as lawyer still makes no sense. I'll represent killers so I can find out more about them to help the police nail them. Not a good look. That was the end of my notes. <laughs> yes, indeed. So uh, indeed. let's move on to bigger and better things. Fantastic Four number 29. It started on Yancey Street. So very rare. We do not get the villain identified on the cover. Um, instead, we have the location for part of the story identified on the cover. It will happen partially in Nancy Street, and we do see the Watcher on the cover. It's never mentioned that Uwatu also has his own stories over in Tales of Suspense. But then we have a very awkwardly plotted issue here. 
I complained yes. there wasn't enough plot in Fantastic Four. Here we have more plot. We begin seemingly in Medias Res, where we have the Fantastic Four on Yancey Street being pelted with cabbage by the unseen ruffians who live there. Ben has a garbage can dumped on his head. Johnny is hit with a bucket of water. Sue has uh, insect sneezing powder. powder. Sneezing yeah, powder. Sneezing powder. Sneezing powder, but being shot at her from one of the quick Henry the Flit uh, insect powder dispensers. And they decide, oh, these people hate us here. Let's leave. Why were we ever here in the first place? Indeed, why were you ever there in the first place? They come back. They open their fan mail. At the bottom of page three, that is some mid-century modern stuff. <laughs> you know, the lamp, the painting behind the thing's head, and it's just very 60s. Yeah, no, I love that. I love that apartment. Jack Kirby always, that's an under undersung aspect of his, is that he just does a great job with modern design. Ben says, I think I'm going to break up with Alicia. And then Alicia shows up. She's like, actually, I want to break up with you. They've each decided to break up with the other one because they're like, how could you possibly be attracted to me? And then they realize, no, we shouldn't break up. We should stay together. More bizarre potting. There's this little flying red thing that has been tracking them there and flies up behind them. Ben gets a box, presumably from Yancey Street, opens it up. There was powder inside that explodes in his face. And it's like, oh, you know, the Yancey Streeters have done something to me. I should go back and do something to them. But then, bizarrely, there's this other other whole thing going on where there's this little flying device that seemingly, this is, I can't even figure out what's going on here. It does a soft click, and then the package explodes. Now, surely you could have just rigged this package to explode. You didn't need a little flying thing to make it explode. The whole thing is rather bizarre. They then yes. say, it's from those Yancey Streeters again. Those rat finks say we're too chicken to come back there tonight. So then they go back to Yancey Street. It's seemingly somewhat foggy tonight. And they suddenly are getting beaten up by three apes. Now you would think they would remember, like, uh, we fought a villain. And indeed, they were just thinking back on their favorite villains. And including a little card they had of Red Ghost and his apes. But here they end up fighting apes for several pages without realizing this must be Red Ghost super apes. They're like, why are all these apes fighting us? Like, it's not as if we have any ape villains. And then finally, the Red Ghost himself has to come out and go like, uh, no, remember me, dude? What are your big villains with the super apes? And then they're like, oh, yes, we had that whole thing. We fought on the moon. And then the Red Ghost is like, well, I think we should keep fighting. And therefore, we must go back to the moon. And it's this is never explained. Why? Like, dude, you fought them once on the moon, but don't spend all your time trying to recreate the magic of the past. You should need to go on and have fresh, new, wonderful experiences here in the modern day. Don't be caught up in the past. And he's like, nope, we're going to finish our fight and we're going to go back to the moon. So I've got my moon ship here. It's controlled by my magnetic ape. And we're going back to the moon. Never explained. Beautiful shot of the ape running a bizarre instrument panel to manipulate the ship. And we then get our second Kirby photo collage. Even cooler yes. than the last one. We have, you know, obviously the moon was very much in the news. Jack Kennedy had died, but he had sworn to put a man on the moon by the end of the decade. And America was still trying our hardest to get up there. And we have a big, beautiful photo of the moon. Presumably this kind of image would have been kind of brand new to humanity. You know, we wouldn't yeah. have been able to see this kind of image of the moon until we were sending unmanned spacecraft up there to go ahead and and uh, get these sorts of photos. So I'm sure this was like sort of a, a new and exciting thing uh, in human knowledge, really. But there's one thing the Red Ghost has not counted on. He So he gets them to go to the moon by putting Johnny in a bag and threatening to fire bullets into the bag if they say, like, unless you surrender. And they're like, OK, we'll surrender. But an there's asbestos one... bag. An asbestos bag. But there's one hard and fast rule that we've learned in these Marvel comics. It's that if you surrender 
and then you relocate in any way, but then the surrender becomes moot. And he says, <laughs> now I'm warning you, fella, any surrendering we did applied to our position on Earth. Once we reach the moon, it is every man for himself. All the more reason not to take this fight to the moon. There was no reason to take this fight to the moon, especially if that means that Reed is no longer surrendered. But he is. Uh, so then, sure enough, Reed and Sue and the whole gang are like, hey, man, surrender's no good anymore. We're on the moon. So then they get in a big fight, crash down onto the moon. There's a fun little sequence where they land on the part of the moon that does not have air, but Sue has force field around them. And then they realize they have to dig through a mountain as they're running out of air to get to the part that does have air because the water lives there. It's never made clear if it has air because the water lives there or if the water lives there because there is air there or if this is just a sheer coincidence. Surely the water doesn't need air. Is it just a coincidence they happen to end up on a part of the moon that just happens to have air? I, I mean, I, I, th I think that it's because there was the ancient civil. I think the air is there because of whatever ancient civilization had built that old city, that it had something that created the air there. You know, I mean, I get the feeling, yes, the Watcher can be out in the outer reaches of space. But, you know, we saw from his origin that his planet looked kind of Earth-like. And, you know, he might enjoy having some air around. <laughs> sure. Why not? <laughs> I will point out that Sue is literally saving everybody's lives. Professional hostage, no more. She is really <laughs> uh, carrying more than her weight on this team at this point. Yes. So then they end up back in the Watcher's house, uh, playing around with his stuff. And then the Red Ghost finds him. And again, Red Ghost, why did you really relocate this fight to the moon? Because once again, he runs the power of the Watcher, just like he did last time. Reed is fighting the Red Ghost and knows that the Red Ghost has no bullets in his gun. Sue does not know that and basically just flat out kills the Red Ghost. She runs up and is like, I'm going to push the Red Ghost into that Watcher's swirling void type thing. Red Ghost is, disappears into nothingness saying everything is fading away. The whole world seems to be slipping past me. Am I going mad? Am I? Am I? Then Reed is like, oh, you totally didn't need to do that. He didn't have any bullets in his gun. But <laughs> then the apes decide to take off without the ghost. They take off in their ship. And the Watcher sends the rest of them back home to Yancey Street, our third visit to Yancey Street in this awkwardly plotted issue. And then it is signed by Stan and Jack. This issue is ultimately sort of just a retread of the first appearance of Red Ghost and the Apes right down to returning to the moon and having the Watcher be part of it again. It is very bizarre they do not have the Red Ghost on the cover, that they are instead going like, who cares about Red Ghost? We've got the Watcher and the whole thing happens on Yancey Street. It is an awkward issue. Ultimately... The Red Goats and Super Apes are fun villains. It is fun to see them fight again. I like the Watcher. I like the Moon. I like every element of the story. I just think it is all... It is wrestled into shape to be a story in a very awkward way. I'll agree with you on that. I, I just feel that their chemistry is really sort of maturing at this point and will only get better for the next 20 issues, sort of reaching its crescendo around the Galactus story. So something about this reminds me of like, oh yeah, things are st just starting to simmer at this point. That's me. I mean, I would say Fantastic Four in the 30s, you know, issues 30 to 39 is somewhat underrated. I feel like we're going to see some good books coming up here, but, you know, I don't think anybody remembers Fantastic Four in the 30s as a pinnacle of the book. No, I didn't say it was a pinnacle of the book. I said that it was ramping up to it. Ramping up to it. Okay. Yes. All right. Anyway, that's my that's my take. Now on to Journey into Mystery with the Mighty Thor. And we've got the Grey Gargoyle showing up here, who is at least a more substantial villain for Thor to be fighting than some of the other 
goons that he uh, is often tussling with. I guess say right <laughs> away here on the cover, there is going to be a big problem with the Greg Argoyle going forward. And this is very much made clear by, I don't, I should have looked up what issue it was, Avengers number 262 or something like that, where it's an issue where they fight the Grey Gargoyle and the Grey Gargoyle keeps touching people and turning them into stone. And this issue was penciled by John Buscema, who's one of the all-time great comic book pencilers and inked by Tom Palmer, I believe, was one of the all-time great inkers. But Buscema and Palmer just cannot make it clear who has been turned into stone and who has not. And so then the colorist was on autopilot and was not carefully reading the comic. And they had this big problem where the colorist went ahead and just colored everyone who had been turned into stone as if they were just normal people because the colorist was not actually reading the comic and did not realize these people had been turned into stone. But here we have the original appearance of the Grey Gargoyle by Kirby and Stone. And Kirby and Stone, as his name implies, are really great at showing when people have been turned into stone. You look at this cover, and yes, it is colored correctly, but it didn't take any great genius on the part of the colorist to color people correctly in terms of whether they've been turned into stone or not. The inks are heavier. They have no pupils in their eyes. They're just doing a great job. I don't think Greg Gargoyle ever looks better than he does on the first page of this issue, where he actually looks like a gargoyle on the roof of a building. And I feel like this is one of the few times I'm like, oh, that's fun. Like Thor is going to be fighting like a gruesome gargoyle who would be you would find on top of a new york building and i feel like that whole concept is very quickly lost yeah actually yeah he does look quite different from how he looks every other time we see him he's not wearing his gloves he's got claw feet yeah he's not wearing a silly little mask that's interesting last time we had seen don and jane jane had uh rejected don because he had seemingly given thor up to the bad guys Blake is uh, lamenting his position with all this, turns himself into Thor in the middle of his office. Then at that moment, Jane walks in and finds Thor. And he's like, oh, what am I going to say? Oh, I'm here looking for Don Blake. I hear he tried to sell me out. Uh, I'm going to go give him a thrashing or whatever. And she says, no, don't. You know what? For for all the problems that he has, I I have to say I, I love him. Please don't. Please don't do, you know, don't kill him. Thor says, you still love him? And then he steps out of the window and then just goes gallivanting around the city, being pulled by his hammer with glee and joy on his face and goes and talks to lovers in the park saying, I'm in love, too. Uh, Isn't it fantastic? (laughs) Just a great, great panel of of Thor flinging himself all over town saying, she loves me. She loves me. She loves me. Kirby just has a tremendous amount of fun with it. Yes. And then so finally, Thor ends up doing some like swirls around a passenger plane. And one of the passengers in there looks out with an evil looking eye at Thor. Plane lands and this gentleman gets out of the plane. The person who's on the ground there says, where are the others, sir? He says, you will find them inside. And then the guy goes in and everybody has been turned to stone. Now, why did he bother to do this? Uh, that's right. I guess it was to try to get Thor's attention, right? Because it was going to get into the news. And yeah, okay. So uh, so there is a reason for doing it, but it's a little silly. Now, one thing I will point out, we, fi- we find out in a minute that this guy is French, but they do not give him the Batoc accent. He is not saying zut <laughs> or any of that sort of stuff. He will occasionally say like, mon dieu, but... 
Yeah, he does not have the exaggerated accent of a truck. So then we get a flashback to see what happened to him. He's a chemist. He ended up spilling some chemical on his hand, and it turned his hand into stone. And then he touched the hand with his other hand, and then it turned into stone. And then he does a face palm, and then he realizes his face has now turned to stone. Anyone he touches will turn to stone. But then he can still move around when he's stoned. So when he turns other people into stone, they revert back to being human in one hour. I noticed that all these sort of weird phenomena always conform themselves to a very even unit of, of time. <laughs> yeah. 60 seconds, one hour, 24 hours. <laughs> it's always precisely on the dot of those things. Like, what a quinky dink. So anyway, he's using his power to rob banks, jewelry stores. But then he decides, OK, you know what? This is this is awesome. My whole crime spree thing. I'm rich. I'm powerful. I don't have to worry about anything. But you know what? A guy like me deserves to be immortal. So I see Thor's around. He's immortal. I'm just going to go and take his hammer because clearly his hammer will make me immortal. Sure. Sure. Yeah. Why not? That seems like a good idea. So then uh, he thinks all this while he's taking a cab to wherever his destination is. And then instead of paying the cabbie, he, of course, turns the cabbie into stone. Uh, now, <laughs> this is one of those things there where, you know, when it comes to comic book logic, how does this stuff work? So he takes off his glove to touch the guy and turn him into stone. Why isn't his glove stone? Steve, do not ask these questions. <laughs> because it wouldn't make sense. They explain later that he doesn't have to take off his gloves, that he has a little circle cut out of the center of his glove to be able to turn stuff to stone even while he's wearing gloves. But the, he's not wearing those gloves yet. Right. But that'll come later. Yes. Although, uh, you know, maybe it's because it's an inanimate object. It will only turn uh, inanimate objects to stone if they're being worn by a person. Let's just go ahead and say that. Let's say that. Headcanon. <laughs> That's our right. headcanon. So Thor is flying, once again, really close to residential windows through the city here. You would think that would be a little disconcerting. Yes. <laughs> but uh, a guy's listening to the radio with his window open and he's hearing uh, and Thor overhears the stuff about a stone taxi driver and the stone passengers in the airplane. And he thinks, oh, I and he actually says out loud, I must get there at once. And the guy who's inside listening to the radio is like, what? What? <laughs> <laughs> That, that was Thor. What What's going on here? Anyway, Thor shows up at the scene where the guy has been turned into stone and then tells them, you know what? Send this guy to Dr. Don Blake. He will study him and figure out what's going on. So, you know, once again, this whole thing about like this is supposed to be a secret identity and yet everything is like, oh, yeah, well, Don Blake knows everything about Thor and Thor knows everything about Don Blake and <laughs> yes. whatevs. So at least in the case of both Daredevil and Thor, it's like, well, this person is handicapped, so they clearly can't be. I mean, I feel like yeah. with Peter Parker, it's more the case of like, OK, guys, it should be tremendously obvious that Peter Parker is Spider-Man at this point. They even have the same build. But like in this case, anyone looking at Don Blake is like, there's no way he could be Thor. Anybody sure. looking at, at Matt Murdock is like, there's no way he can be Daredevil. So they can get away with a little more than Spider-Man can. Yes, true. This is uh, Don Blake. I'm guessing he's going back to being super scientist Don Blake here from yes. earlier because he's the one who you're going to send the stone body to. He's trying to examine the guy, finds out that he's still alive and will probably be able to recover. So then we see the gray gargoyle putting on his costume. Now, this is one thing about people whose bodies change into other substances, into other types of, of matter. 
is that then when they're in their human form, they just look like they're wearing shorty shorts and like tank tops. So we see him putting on his costume and yeah, it looks just really, really strange. This will be a problem all the way through the 80s. It was still a problem when we were reading comics in the 80s that he, you know, like generally speaking, anybody who's wearing like tidy whities and socks is, you know, they talk about on the old show coupling, you know, the black sock gap, how if you're like with a woman, you've got to take off your black socks very quickly because you don't want to be standing there in your underwear and black socks. That's what he looks like here. He is in the black sock gap. <laughs> yeah. So, um, well, you know, in, in uh, X-Men, when Colossus showed up, they solved it by just saying that these unstable molecules make the blue pants just disappear when he turns to steel and then they reappear when he turns back to human form. <laughs> Which is just logical. That's just logic. Yes. Yeah, Oh, a- absolutely. Grey Gargoyle uh, then is able to use his hard, super strong uh, hands and feet to actually gouge out little handholds in a building and climb up. You would think that if he was actually in stone, that would make him heavier and harder to climb up something like this, but not in this case. So the Grey Gargoyle shows up in Dr. Don Blake's office because he found out that's where the guy had been sent. Blake turns around and is like, you know, oh, wait, you're another stone figure, but you can move. So it's very perceptive of you, doctor, but uh, but you cannot suspect how different the Grey Gargoyle really is. Before you entertain any foolish notions, such as trying to summon the police, let me show you the extent of my power. See how I fold a paper airplane. (laughs) (laughs) Hey, man, can you fold a paper airplane? I don't think you can, can you? Because you don't have the extent of his power. Oh, crap, I can. (laughs) No, but then he turns the paper airplane to stone with the little hole in the palm of his uh, glove. Uh, And so now it's a stone paper airplane, which he then uses as a sharp projectile to throw at Dr. Blake. So, okay, but take that panel out of context and it's just chef's kiss. It's great. Okay, so so, uh, then the Grey Gargoyle is chasing Don Blake. Uh, Don Blake is very spry for a man who has to have a cane to walk around, but he is able to make it to an elevator. He goes up to the rooftop really nice couple of panels where he turns himself from Blake into Thor on page 10. Thor and Grey Gargoyle are battling. Then Grey Gargoyle falls down and once again finds another empty flagpole. But in this case, uh, says the mere touch of my hand makes this flagpole strong enough to support my weight and break my fall. It's like metal is much better at that than stone (laughs) in this case, dude. Stone is very brittle. It does not, as I learned in physics, stone does well under compression Metal does well under tension. You're putting tension on this thing. It will break. Okay. (laughs) Physics moment. Anyway, he's able to break his fall further through an awning. Once again, awnings always very convenient in the Marvel Universe. Greg Argoyle then goes to a gas station and is able to use his own stone body like flint to uh, light some gas and create an explosion. Thor drops his hammer. The Greg Gargoyle goes over and tries to lift it. But of course, you can't lift Thor's hammer. Thor comes over and grabs it again, but then Grey Gargoyle turns him into a stone statue. So then the New York City's famed flamethrower brigade shows up. (laughs) Famed. Um, Famed. Uh, Because, I mean, you know, 
flamethrowers in a police force. <laughs> How could this possibly go wrong? It's not like there's a lot of civil rights tension going on at the time. <laughs> that you would like literally not want to inflame. Yes. <laughs> and they say that, that their flamethrowers can actually turn stone to lava. So these are some serious flamethrowers. You posted this on Facebook and somebody's yes. like, uh, given that chimneys work, I don't think that's possible. Yes, that's actually uh, my friend Darren Kennedy who uh, who mentioned that. Um, actually, uh, novelist himself. There you go. So, Gray Gargoyle gets away from the flame. Flamethrower policemen are chasing him. Meanwhile, we go back and see the stone statue of Thor is starting to fall over just because he can't keep himself upright when he's a statue. And it just so happens that his hammer hits the ground before the rest of him, which turns him back into Don Blake, which means that he's no longer a statue because those things never seem to carry over between the two different identities. Uh, seems a little too convenient by half, but you know what you're going to do. He then hobbles back to his office. The lame physician phones a friend who manages a TV newsreel company. And Blake says to him, and if you do as I say, I promise you the scoop of the century. Tony Stark has the device you need. Tell him the code word I gave you and he'll lend it to you guy smoking a pipe there on the phone says it's a deal doc you've never steered me wrong before i'll do it i'm like what stories has don blake been feeding to this reporter <laughs> anyway so um you do have to wonder. yes so uh blake then gets on a motorcycle that has this special a tv 3d type projector that is mounted onto the top of a motorcycle. And this projector projects an image of Thor flying just in front of where the motorcycle is, driving throughout the city with this image of Thor flying around so that Grey Gargoyle will be like, what, I turned him into stone. How did he turn back into human form? That's weird. And so the Grey Gargoyle then shows himself. Blake has him chasing the fake Thor for a while. Apparently, with this projector, can actually show Thor then doing loop-de-loops. Yes, like quite that. a projector. So Thor then throws his hammer at the Grey Gargoyle, but lo and behold, it is not Thor. Figures out that he's been tricked, and he uh, gets into a van and starts chasing Blake on the motorcycle. And then there's a fantastic panel on the bottom of page 17, both the gargoyle and Blake on his motorcycle end up uh, in a crash at the end of a pier, wrecking the van and jumping the motorcycle into the water. Uh, and it's just one of those action scenes that is um, signature Jack Kirby. Of course, stone does not float, so the Grey Gargoyle falls to the bottom of the ocean, uh, or the, the bay, the harbor, whatever it is. And um, But he knows that he will not turn back into humans soon, so that means he can survive underwater until he can walk out of there. Dr. Blake climbs out of the water onto another pier. Thor then returns to the doctor's office where he had sent this guy, who happens to be Don Blake's doctor's office. Jane is then saying, uh, well, Thor, Dr. Blake isn't here. Uh, you know, oh, yeah, I probably could figure that out. So but here's the cab driver and we're going to go ahead and send him off now that he's better. And then she shows Thor a newspaper headline. Once again, you talk about the news cycle and everything showing up in the newspaper like immediately. But the headline says, Daring Physician Rids City of Grey Gargoyle Menace. So he now no longer looks like some sort of coward who's willing to sell out the heroes. He now looks like a hero himself. 
So um, that is the end of the main story in this issue. I mean, the Grey Gargoyle is a decent villain. Uh, like I said, he's more substantial for Thor to fight than Cobra. <laughs> yeah, he's better than uh, Cobra. You know, we just desperately need to get back to the Asgardian villains. We just desperately need to. We are going to have Asgardian villains in Avengers this month, which will be a welcome relief. Grey Gargoyle, certainly a villain that Marvel will get lots of use out of going forward. A not entirely terrible villain, as long as you have the colorist working on the same page as the penciler and coloring people as if they've actually been made of stone. But ultimately, this issue is merely okay. Yes. All right. So now we move on to Tales of Asgard. Again, these things tend to be much less plotty than uh, the main stories do. Uh, they have fewer panels per page and uh, are often just telling short little uh, tales. So in this case, Loki is looking at Balder the Brave. So this is our next issue featuring Balder. Loki, of course, has nothing but contempt for him because he is so kind and loving in addition to being uh, brave and valorous. I just think that they have a lot of fun with Balder. And so we have Balder playing some sort of bizarre stringed instrument to all of the animals who are all, you know, <laughs> he just... He says, as the innocent godling sings a refrain to his friends in the forest, little does he dream that Loki has vowed his death. And I just, I like Baldur a lot. I think he's just a, he's just a sweet little guy. Yeah, he's, he's uh, St. Francis of Assisi here. So <laughs> Loki then goes to find the Norn Queen, Mistress of Magic, to find some mystic spell that can destroy Balder. So she is not named here. This is clearly Carnippa, who will become enamored of Balder. And most Balder stories from this point forward will also be Carnilla's stories. And Carnilla's infatuation with Balder will become a major part of his character and certainly of her character. But she is not named here and is not totally in love with him yet, but is clearly starting to it is not surprising that she will eventually fall in love with him. Yes. She wants nothing to do with Loki. She tries to send him away. He says, silence, female. Your feelings are of no importance to the son of Odin. Uh, so no, no Tom Hiddleston here. No. <laughs> Loki forces her to provide the magic to take care of Balder. Sort of the Asgardian version of the Tale of Achilles, but in the last, this is very much a sort of a follow-up last issue where Odin made all, everything in the world promise to never hurt Balder, and the one thing that forgot to make that promise to Odin was mistletoe. So then Carnilla knows this, Carnilla tells Loki like, oh, I will go ahead and tell you. There's one living thing which Odin overlooked, the tiny mistletoe made no such pledge. So then Loki realizes, oh, I'm going to go get some mistletoe. I'm going to have this dude make me an awesome little mistletoe dart gun. And then I'm going to go kill Balder with it. He's about to shoot the dart gun and then it explodes in his hand and a big ball of fire, which Kirby has a fun time drawing. And then Carnilla's like, ah, the one thing you had not thought of is that the whole world promised not to hurt Balder, including me. I also promised not to hurt Balder. And so I'm going to keep you from hurting Balder. And that's why I made your blowgun explode in your hand. He thought he had figured out the one way to hurt Balder, but there was one thing he hadn't counted on. Yes. Um, and of course, mistletoe in Norse mythology uh, has a lot of magic powers. One of them, apparently in this case, is that it can kill Balder. We got a hugely important part of the Thor mythos here with the introduction of Cardella already uh, with a soft spot for Balder, which will only grow as time passes. Once again, it feels like sort of an incomplete story. Eventually, Tales of Asgard will become the home of huge multi-part epics, which, you know, and so it sort of becomes the exact opposite of what it is now. It becomes like the most 
long running of all Kirby stories are these huge Tales of Asgard epics he will do. Right now, he's still trying to write complete five-page stories, or he and Lee are trying to co-write these little five-page stories, and he is chafing a little bit, I think, under that. He's having a harder time cramming five pages of story into these things. Yes. All right, everyone. We have been recording for two hours and one minute, so that's going to have to be cut down <laughs> to an hour. I hope you guys appreciate how much work we put into editing this episode. I know I'll, I listen to other people's podcasts and they'll be like, oh, man, we've been recording for 72 minutes. And then I'll see that like we're actually at the 72 minute mark. And I'm like, you people aren't editing. You aren't editing at all. You actually know exactly that you're 72 minutes into the episode because both Steve and I, we make a lot of stammers. We make a lot of uhs and ums and say things that shouldn't be in the podcast. And we have to edit the hell out of these things. And I'm so <laughs> jealous of other people who are just, I guess, natural podcasters, which I am not, and are able to just do an episode they don't have to edit. So we're going to edit the hell out of this down from two hours to one hour. And so obviously we can't get to the second half of the month this episode. So let's go ahead and wrap things up there. And we will, as always, we will go ahead and record the second half of the month tonight. But we'll first go ahead and end this episode. So, Steve, anything to say in conclusion? Uh, no, I want to go ahead and get on with the rest of the stuff here. So uh, bye, everybody. Thanks for listening and uh, take care. Stay safe out there. Bye. Thank you for listening to Marvel Reread Club. Please subscribe and rate us wherever you found us. Go to secretsofstory.com and click on Marvel Reread Club in the sidebar to find notes and join the discussion about this episode. See you next time.